News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. By its very nature, a spy's job is to keep a low profile, right? But a Canadian intelligence officer is now coming out of the shadows to blow the whistle on how his agency, which would be CSIS, handled safety protocols during the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's bring in reporter Jasmine Pisano now for more on this story. Good morning, Jasmine. Morning, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us for this. So tell us, what exactly is going on here with this Canadian intelligence officer? What is he saying? Thank you. And like you said, it's rare that we hear from anyone from CSIS, but Gary Vox Smith was brave enough to tell us his story. He may only be a few months away from retirement, so he volunteered to speak up because he's been worried about the health and safety of his teams. Many of them are forced to come into the Ottawa headquarters because they work on sensitive files. And he told us that he pushed for a mandatory masking policy in the building for months, but the agency refused. And it got to the point where he said some staff members were so afraid of running into maskless coworkers that they had stopped leaving their desks except for bathroom breaks. Okay, that sounds very unusual because, it, I mean, how often does somebody from CSIS come out and even say what it's, what it's like at CSIS, right? Very, very rare. That's right. Yeah, we, um, he came to us with this story uh, very bravely, I believe. So I'm happy to tell it. Okay, good. So, the, so with a policy like that, do we know, like, did it apply there? Did anything ever change? Like, did, did coming forward change things for the staffer? Well, in explaining that, if they wanted a mandatory masking policy, so CSIS told us that it's been following the advice of the Public Health Agency of Canada since the start of the pandemic. And it also said it's been taking measures, including hand washing, physical distancing, to prevent the spread of COVID-19. But it made masking mandatory when public health advice changed with the third wave. We also know that managers had pushed back against Boss Smith when he had advocated for this change. And one of his supervisors had suggested he was being perceived as, quote, disrespectful. Uh, CSIS Director David Vigneault also responded to Boss Smith by saying that requiring masks was not necessary. But in March, CSIS had COVID-19 outbreaks at its building and Vigneault himself tested positive, though the agency said he became infected outside the workplace. And, and it was only after the outbreaks that CSIS started requiring everyone to wear a mask at work. And though CSIS told Global that its employees uh, have been free and encouraged to give their input about safety measures at work. What a story. All right, Jasmine, thank you for that. Thank you so much for having me, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. We're pretty much just on the verge of camping season, like really fully getting underway. But as we know, it was announced back in March that only BC residents could book a campsite in our province for the spring season. They have had to cancel some reservations of people who are trying to book from outside of our province. But we thought, let's find out how camping season is shaping up. Our contributor, Raji Sohal, is with us now for more on that. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, I talked to uh, Sam Waddington. He's the owner of Mount Waddington's Outdoors in Chilliwack. And he kind of gave me the lowdown because to be honest, I'm actually not much of a camper. I was wondering about this. So are you, you're not much of a, it's hard when you've got little kids. Some people love it when they've got little kids, others not so much. I joined a Facebook group of moms and it's called Born to be Adventurous. And it's a huge group here in Vancouver. And it's all of these uh, young families sharing their tips on how to camp. 
And I thought that would prime me for the season. But then now, given all the uh, sold out sites, I'm thinking, ah, maybe we'll just wait till next year. Yeah. Tell me, what did uh, Sam Waddington have to say then? Well, he said that, yeah, we're actually in the second spring of camping with COVID protocols in place. And things have uh, changed a little bit, improved a little bit too. Here he is. In some ways, there's some more certainty than last year around, um, you know, knowing what uh, this pandemic is going to look like from a, you know, infectious disease perspective. So, you know, can you and can you not be in a campground? Are you worried about your risks of, of you know, contracting COVID-19 from the washroom facilities and the, and the water fountains, these types of things. So in many ways, we're in a better place than we were last year. However, um, when we look at travel plans, um, that's a big part of um, people's people's summer planning is is leaving their region, perhaps, but they still view that as very local travel, right? We aren't going to um, Mexico and Hawaii and overseas and down into the United States. So a lot of folks have chosen to stay local, go camping, invest in that with their families. And now those plans are changing. And, and there's certainly some uh, some concern amongst at least our customers and, and, and folks we're, we're hearing from outside the region as well. How are campsite bookings looking? Uh, they are slammed. <laughs> so campsite bookings are really busy for, for a couple of reasons. Again, um, folks are having to stay local. And I think people are now very used to planning ahead in pandemic times. Anyone who's bought anything from a, a local retailer or purchased something online knows that these lead times are real. Um, and so that's translated into, into bookings in, in the campsite world. But what we're also seeing is that BC Parks and the Ministry of Forest, Lands and Natural Resource Operations has had to spread out certain bookings in certain campsites and limit occupancy based on volume of people in, in certain places. So there's a little bit less supply. There's certainly a higher demand. And, uh, and so now we're seeing that, uh, that, that reflect in, in higher than normal bookings, but also uh, now some challenges with how those bookings are going to play out. With the pandemic, one might guess that camping is more popular than ever. And that sounds like what you're saying, but is that actually yeah. true statistically? What are you seeing? Yeah, it's it's more true than ever before. Um, I was actually just on a call earlier today um, with uh, with some folks from um, across the region, different user groups, different um, uh, folks from uh, from BC Parks and from from rec sites and trails and um, volumes are up and that's on all trail counters, uh, that we have at trailheads, um, parking lot assessments with, um, keeping track of vehicle numbers and these types of things. And we are mindful that in the vehicle numbers, people are sometimes traveling individually when they collectively last year, year before would have come as a carpooled party. Okay. So that's Sam Waddington from Waddington's Outdoor. So, so Raji, like in order to book a campsite though, right now, people have to certify their BC residency, right? Yeah, it's a bit of an honor system. They're asked to do that online, but there's, I mean, you could really say anything. And Sam Waddington says that campers are, are being asked to take the zone parameters quite seriously. These regional uh, restrictions are in place for a reason, because they have to be there. We need to respect that as users. I'm not a public health official. I do not have all the facts at hand. So I need to trust that those those uh, policies are in place for a reason, and, and I'm going to abide by them, and everyone else should as well. Um, so when you're not, there are um, mechanisms in place where um, BC Parks and the Ministry of Forest Lands and Natural Resource Operations is going to have the ability um, to ticket and to fine and, and have other mechanisms in place as well. Um, in speaking with all of you know my colleagues in that realm, they don't want to have to use um, the stick that they have in their hand. Um, they really don't want to be playing that game of trying to keep people away 
um, and, and finding families while they're out camping because they left their region. So what I would ask is, you know, these are other individuals who just want to go home to their families and be safe as well. Uh, they've got a job to do. They're trying to maintain trails. They're trying to keep our backcountry safe. Please don't put them in a position where they need to reprimand you as a grown individual for breaking a very simple rule that's there for your um, best interest and, and your families and, and my family as well. Okay. It sounds like, though, they don't really want to be the person handing out the punishment here, Raji. No. And can you imagine you've packed up with your family, you've driven several hours, you get there, you get spot checked and in front of your kids, you have to sheepishly say, oh, sorry. yeah, I broke the rules. Exactly. And then you get sent home right then and there. So, I mean, nobody wants to find themselves in that situation. And these, like, like Sam said, these are in place for very good reasons. Yeah. They, they ought to be respected. All right. We're going to talk with you a little bit later on the show about camping too. Thanks. Thanks. We've been talking about camping this morning. Uh, when people are able to move around again, it's so busy on those campsites out there. Our contributor, Raji Sohal, joins us now for more on this. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so we've talked about how busy it could potentially be, but let's talk about the toll that's taking on some of our outdoor spaces. Yeah, actually quite a toll, just given that it is a record year for bookings and trails have been completely packed. I talked to Sam Waddington, the owner of Mount Waddington's Outdoors out there in Chilliwack. Um, He told me about the impact that all this nature traffic is having. Mental health in the wilderness and getting out and experiencing beautiful British Columbia has always been uh, top of our agenda. But we're seeing tourism agencies talk about, you know, over tourism, talk about strategies for going to be at trailheads for how do you pack it in? How do you pack it out? Because anytime you have this kind of a change, you're not having experienced users exclusively using more facilities than before. You're having some very um, new challenges because a lot of first time users, which is awesome. Again, get outside and and do that, enjoy it. And, And you have every right to be there, even if you've never been hiking before, but there are ways to be in the back country that might be different. And some, here's an example of something that you may not think of is on a trail. Oftentimes they're, we call them single tracks. So they're narrow paths through the forest. Everyone can kind of picture that, that trail. But if you're trying to socially distance, either with the people you're hiking with, or as you come up to somebody hiking down the trail, the opposite direction, you're going to step off. And so we're seeing um, huge impacts as our trails uh, braid, as, as the impact into the surrounding foliage is very real. And those are huge environmental challenges that we're going to be dealing with because in sensitive alpine environments specifically, um, some of those, you know, you walk over there, a hundred people follow you um, over the course of even just one season, that might take 10 or 15 years to repair in the alpine in terms of how long that takes to grow back. You know, Raji, that is such a good point because I'd never considered that. I always thought, oh, if you stick to the trails, it should be fine. But people stepping off to let other people go by, I can see that would be a huge concern. Yeah, I never gave it a thought till he mentioned it either. And I was thinking of myself and how I go up the trails and how I'm trying to leave two meters between myself and other people, even just doing the grouse grind. Uh, the trail is, it's done. Like it needs um, work and it needs uh, some some rejigging. So the ecological impact there is is huge. And Sam Waddington doesn't think that the province is stepping up to help overburdened municipal parks and and doing enough to protect trails. Um, He in fact said that a lot of volunteers are doing that kind of work. But he does want us to consider how users can curb damage. A lot of people don't realize that you can actually spend up to 14 days in any location in crown lands in the province of BC. And the province of BC 
is the vast majority crown land, not private held land or city lands. Um, so all lands that are not a provincial park and are not within a city jurisdiction, those are crown lands. And you can hike up a trail and camp and you can camp next to a river and you can pull off of a forestry road and you can camp. Um, there are ways to do that that are low impact or no impact. And you have to be managing those things, especially if you're camping in places that are not a designated camp area. That doesn't mean they're illegal. Um, I mean, in in true, you know, anytime somebody's done a through hike through the wilderness or or a lot of, you know, uh, whitewater paddlers and, and, and climbers and these types of folks have always kind of known that um, you can camp while you're on those types of trips in the backcountry and, and following a leave no trace um, philosophy. That's totally appropriate. But what we're what we're seeing is more and more people are doing that just by default. Last summer, we saw a lot of it because they were driving to a campsite that was full and then doubling back and maybe just pulling off on a forestry road somewhere and camping just because they had all their stuff. It's now seven o'clock at night and they didn't know where to go and they're an hour and a half from home. So we're, we saw a lot of that happen by default. So what we'd ask is that if people are planning those things and you're looking at maps and planning some backcountry trips, don't shy away from those 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 um, backcountry zones. Take a look at what that what's happening and uh, and see if there's a, a unique opportunity um, to to camp in some some really special spots. Okay, that's good advice. But Roger, I think the most important thing here is the you really got to do the leave nothing behind philosophy, right? Like make Absolutely. it look like you weren't there. Yeah, um, but what he is talking about there with the backcountry camping, of course, like, you know, if you're a novice, be there with other people who know what they're doing, uh, who know how to stay safe, uh, keep that food away from the bears and whatnot. But this kind of camping, this idea of like backcountry camping appeals to me and I'm not much of a camper. And one of the reasons I'm not one of, much of a camper is because I don't find it appealing to like see tons of other people at a campsite. Right. If I'm in the great outdoors, I just want to be in the great outdoors. So I might look into that a little bit myself. Oh, I'd love that. That could be a reality TV show. I would enjoy watching that. <laughs> Raji in the great outdoors. Thanks for that. Thanks, Simi. <laughs> That's Raji Sohal, our contributor, talking about camping. Now, if you're trying to make camping plans for this summer, let us know how it's going. Have you canceled? Are you rescheduling? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. I think a lot of us were very surprised to see the pictures yesterday of the bear kind of wandering around on the east side of Vancouver yesterday, almost to downtown Vancouver, actually. So you had police called out, conservation officers called out, because there were calls of people seeing a black bear wandering near the PNE. That was yesterday at around noon. Then they were able to track this bear all the way to the train tracks near the foot of Heatley Avenue. That's pr almost downtown. Uh, that's eventually where the bear was tranquilized. It's going to be relocated somewhere in the sea to sky region. That's according to the Ministry of the Environment. But boy, it sure got us thinking about, we talk about bears on the North Shore and the Tri-Cities, but on this side of the bridges on the water, that's a bit unusual. Uh, let's talk more about it now with Lucy Cadman, who's the Executive Director of the Black Bear Society. Good morning, Lucy. Good morning. Did that surprise you to see these pictures yesterday? Uh, well, I was certainly somewhat surprised uh, yesterday afternoon when I received a number of calls actually from concerned uh, residents that had uh, seen this bear wandering uh, very, very close to Gastown, as, as you say. Uh, now, it's not that unusual to see bears uh, traveling closer to the PNE. Uh, we've seen that over the past couple of years. We're suspecting that the bears are traveling along the railroad uh, from Burnaby, which certainly is bear country. 
So is that, do you think what happened is just every once in a while, like, and I've never, I don't remember hearing of one getting so close to downtown before, but just wandering away, just kind of following a path. Absolutely. Like they're curious animals. They enjoy exploring their surroundings. Certainly uh, that's not a good location for uh, a young bear to be. They're very vulnerable uh, in that area, certainly. So we're very, very pleased that uh, this bear was offered a second chance and they were relocated uh, to a more suitable location. would like to say that that typically doesn't happen. Bears that find food around houses uh, could be garbage, bird seed, fruit trees, pet food, freezers, fridges. Any bears typically across British Columbia that find food outside our homes will be killed and, and not relocated. So uh, very glad to see that this bear got a second chance. There's lots of natural foods for them on the way down there as well with all the clear-cut areas. At this time of year, bears are seeking out grass, dandelions, digging for bugs. So uh, there was certainly lots of natural food on that route that the bear might have enjoyed too. Right. So this little guy was just kind of looking for a grassy area probably, right, to settle down for a little while. I suspect so, and uh, especially the younger bears, they are very curious, and uh, so they can end up in some unusual places. We had a bear that uh, got into a garbage truck on the North Shore uh, a few years ago, and that bear did end up right in the downtown core uh, before the uh, before they realized oh, the bear was in the garbage truck. So you've had a couple, uh, but it is unusual. Yeah, it is. Okay, so then Lucy, what are some of the areas in Metro Vancouver that would you say are the most bear problematic? I don't know if we've got bear problems. We've certainly got lots of uh, people that aren't acting on their responsibility to secure food. Uh, where I say we've got lots of bear activities, certainly everywhere on the North Shore. We've been incredibly busy with bear activity since mid-February. Um, so we've had uh, at least 10 individual bears that have been active since that time. Uh, that's very much due to lots of unnatural food sources. So the bears went straight from their dens back into the communities where they found food. And then, of course, we've got areas like uh, Port Moody, Port Coquitlam, Coquitlam. They're really hot spot communities for wildlife and certainly Burnaby, typically Burnaby Mountain. But uh, as we can see from, from this story, it might be a little bit closer uh, to the lower Burnaby, closer to downtown area there. So anybody living in areas where bears live, what we ask is that you secure food outside of your home and you give these bears lots of space as well. We really don't want to see people chasing them for photographs and putting lots of pressure and stress on these animals. Certainly, if you see a bear as, you, as you're driving, we ask you to slow down and give them lots of space. But please don't pull over and take photographs. Please don't try to distract bears either as they're trying to cross the road. So they are very calm and peaceful by nature, which is uh, why this bear did look very relaxed. Yeah. Uh, Sure, they've had quite a stressful time, though, so to be tranquilized and then, uh, you yeah. know, dropped off in an area that you're not familiar with, it is very stressful, which is why, you know, typically we don't support relocation, uh, you know, if it's a bear that's just in the community finding food. What we want to do is uh, get people to secure that food and the bear will, will move on uh, because relocation is, is very, very stressful and many of our bears don't survive that, very sadly. Mm, okay, so um, you mentioned that you've been like, getting calls and stuff from since February. Now, is that mm. normal for this time of year? Are you seeing regular bear activity or is it busier? Well, goodness me, certainly more people are aware of the North Shore Black Bear Society, so that's increased reports. Uh, we had a lot of bear activity on the North Shore well into mid-December, so that's thanks to a mild winter, but really uh, it's the unnatural food sources that are available to these bears. Uh, so bears den for the winter because there's no natural food, no 
berries, no dandelions, no salmon, so they conserve their energy. But if we leave food available to them, some bears can remain active over the winter. And we did see that on the North Shore. So typically, male bears might den for a much shorter period of time. They might leave their den. When bears go into hibernation, they don't go into really deep sleep. It's very easy for them to wake up. They might leave their den and supplement uh, their winter with some unnatural foods. And uh, yes, absolutely. Thanks to people leaving food out, uh, that's created a huge increase in bear activity in, in residential areas here on the North Shore. So we've had a very busy and early start to our season. It's going to be a, a busy year for bears in British Columbia. Right. So the, the is that the garbage thing? Do you think that's the number one attractant there? If you could just get people to be better about their garbage? Absolutely. Anything that smells really bad to us typically smells really good to a bear. So If you've got lockable garbage carts that were issued by your district or municipality, they will not be bear-proof and we've got to make extra effort to secure them. If you have a garage or shed, we really encourage people to keep garbage and food scraps inside a secure area such as that. Freeze really odorous things like meat and fish. And baby diapers are a very strong bear attractant. So we want people to keep those inside of your home or garage until the morning of collection. The other strong attractants are bird feeders. So black bears are incredible climbers. They've got a really long reach. It's practically impossible to hang a bird feeder where a bear can't get to it. So we ask that people don't feed the birds in that way. Uh, Plant to encourage the birds, install a bird bath. And then uh, moving forward, it will be fruit trees, a very, very strong attractant. So if you don't have the time to manage your fruit tree, we please ask that you remove that. Bears will remember where they found food and they will continue to come back. Right. Hopefully this one, though, won't be too deeply impacted by this and is perfectly fine being relocated. Lucy, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you very much. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. The latest predictions from Canada Mortgage and Housing say home prices in Metro Vancouver are going to continue to rise over the next few years. I don't even know how that seems possible, given the price increases that we have seen already over the last year or two. According to Canada Mortgage and Housing, they're saying, you know what, we're a gateway city. Closed borders have a disproportionate impact on Vancouver's housing market. And they believe that prices are going to continue to go up because of the current situation. And they believe it's also a direct indication of the scarcity of homes for sale. So if that's not going to change, what are we going to do about it? What is the federal government doing about it? To talk more about that now, we are joined by federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. Now, I know this is something near and dear to your heart. I mean, you are a Burnaby MP. What is being done for housing in the current budget? Is there anything? No, nothing really at all. And that's one of the biggest gaps in the budget. And it is something really near and dear to me. I think about it all the time, how it is so impossible for someone to buy a home right now, how the housing prices, uh, prices for rent, it just finding a place to call home is becoming impossible. And it is frustrating to me. And I understand people's frustration when they just feel like they're doing everything right. They're saving money, but they just can't afford a place. So what I envision coming out of this pandemic is we've got to take this crisis seriously. And the problem I've seen with Justin Trudeau is that he often says something is a crisis, but then doesn't act like it. What I want to see us do is two things. One, we've got to get at the pressures that are rising the cost of housing. And the second thing is we've got to tackle the opportunity for people to buy a, uh, a place to call home. So the two ways I'd look at it, one is we've got to uh, massively uh, stop the kind of 
influx of money that is driving up the cost of housing. So a foreign buyer's tax was, was I think, effective in, in BC, but it's got to be national. So I'd like a national foreign buyer's tax, a national vacant property tax, so we can free up homes that, that, so that people can actually live in them instead of them being used as a, as a stock uh, market and right. pl- plopping money down somewhere where it's safe. Uh, money laundering is directly connected to the rise of uh, cost of housing, something that BC understands, but it's not something as well-known across Canada. Uh, the other thing that I would do is the same way out of the world wars, we decided as a country to build massively in in uh, affordable homes. And many uh, lower mainland folks know about uh, the post-war homes that were the first homes that people were able to afford. Uh, so what I'd like to do is is the same thing. So out of this pandemic, let us massively invest in all housing, townhouses, apartments, homes that people can buy, invest in building homes that are affordable for people, and also affordable rent. So there's lots of ways we can encourage affordable rent. Use this as an opportunity to kickstart our economy by really investing massively in building these affordable homes. Now, I would argue, though, that the key to getting some of this done lies with you and your party, given that, you know, the federal liberals are in a minority government position. So why can't you get this done? What we've seen throughout uh, the pandemic is that we've had to fight tooth and nail for any support for people. The Liberals started off the wage subsidy, for example, at 10%. They were proposing to cover 10% of a worker's salary. At 10%, that wasn't going to save jobs. We had to fight tooth and nail to increase it to 75%. I remember writing a letter with really unlikely allies that brought together the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses and their president with a uniform president and myself to say, if we want to save jobs, it's got to be at least 75%. It took us weeks and weeks of pushing, and we finally got it up to 75%, which really saved millions of Canadian jobs. Uh, it saved millions of jobs. Same way with survey. It started off at 1,000. We had to fight hard to double it. Uh, there was no help for students. We had to fight to make that happen. And there was no paid sick leave. We fought to bring that in. So we have had to fight tooth and nail. It's not like the Liberals are just waiting to do things that are helpful for people. They seem to always want to do the minimum, and we've had to fight to push them to do more for people. And uh, this is another example where they're kind of ignoring this crisis again. They don't really get, I guess, what people are going through. I get it, and I care, and I'm going to keep on fighting. But wasn't that the time to do that before this federal budget? Because now the budget is out, and this sounds like a budget that they're probably going to campaign on in the next election. Well, that's the thing. If they're going to, if their goal is to go to an election, then it doesn't really matter uh, what they put in the budget. They're not going to actually do it. If they're going to campaign on it, then it's just a bunch of empty words, really. If their goal is just to go to an election, then then what is the worth of any of the things that they're saying? Do they really actually want to see childcare investments happen? If they do, I'm ready to make that happen tomorrow. We could we could pass that like we could pass that legislation right away if they actually wanted to see it happen. If they actually cared about housing, we're ready. Uh, I've said multiple times that we will pass legislation that helps Canadians, and we've done it. So uh, really what it comes down to, if, the, if they're actually interested in getting things done, we've found that when the legislation is presented, that's where we were able to push and get the things uh, changed that we wanted. For example, which is the first new social, uh, new social safety net in a generation. We were able to do these things during the legislative process. When they brought legislation forward and needed support, that's when we fought and got in uh, those changes. We put pressure ahead of time to let them know this is what we care about and this is what people need, and then we continue to apply pressure. But if the Liberals don't want to do it, at the end of the day, they're answerable to, to Canadians. If they don't care about the struggles that people are going through, that's on, uh, that's on them. Uh, people can vote for more of us, and we will get these things done. Yeah, if you could, had to pick one thing, though, on that list of items that you talked about in terms of improving the housing market, what would be the one thing that you say this must be done? I think we just got to really build more. 
uh, affordable homes, like places that people can call home. Uh, we've got to do similar to what we did after the post-World uh, Wars. It, it was the same kind of initiative where, as a nation, we decided we've got to build homes. So we used the CMHC, federal funding, and built homes. And a lot of the, the first homes that people bought after the World Wars were these post-war homes. Uh, that's what I'd like to see. I think is one of the most important things. And we made that commitment in our platform that a new Democrat government federally would just massively invest in building new homes that are affordable. Is that something that you think is going to be a big topic in the next election campaign? I feel like it doesn't get a lot of discussion right now on a national level. We certainly talk about it here in BC. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't get enough attention, but it is something that I hear everywhere. Like everywhere I go, whether I'm in uh, my riding in Burnaby or if I'm in uh, Toronto, if I'm in Montreal, even in Atlantic provinces, it's actually something issue. Though every every region is very different, every part of Canada has a lot of different challenges or, or different and unique circumstances, housing is a unifying factor. Everyone is going through a struggle right now. Housing is, is unattainable for so many people. And so I really believe it's a unifying issue that we can solve. Like We have seen other countries do this. There is a path forward, and I'm really confident we can get it done if uh, governments have the will to do it. A new Democrat government would have the will to do it. Listen, thank you very much for your time this morning. Always a pleasure. Thank This is Mornings with Simi. More than a few areas will be in need of revitalization when we move out of this pandemic. One of them being Gastown. I mean, before the pandemic hit, that was a bustling area. Lots of pubs, lots of restaurants, very busy, you know, very busy socially there. And that has changed, of course, and it's a different vibe down there now. But there's planning underway from the Gastown Business Improvement Association to talk about the kind of things that they need to do to bring people back, something that would make it busy once again. And there's some interesting stuff about going on there. Uh, joining us now for more on this is Eli Brennan, owner of the Water Street Cafe, one of the big restaurants there in Gastown. Hi, thanks for being with us. Simi, thanks for having me back on the show. Great well, to hear from you. Tell me about how things are going at the Water Street Cafe. You know, it's uh, it's a very difficult time for everyone in our business. Um, we, you know, we're very fortunate that we have an amazing community and uh, amazing team, um, and a lot of people coming down to support. But I won't lie; it's been the hardest uh, fourteen months I've ever experienced personally. And so, you are still getting customers. You are keeping the place open. Oh, definitely. We're, we're there. We've got our patios. The city's been very supportive in extending that area, um, and we're ready to serve you. So I also know, Eli, that that restaurant's been around there for a long time. So you've seen a lot of changes in Gastown. But w- what's it like right now down there? Gastown is pretty hard hit. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, you know, just loss of business with the lack of tourism um, and big changes in the area. Um, we don't have the residential base that a lot of areas do have. So um, when we see uh, travel restrictions and different, uh, you know, uh, valid things that need to be done to help slow the curve, it does definitely affect us a little bit more than others. Do you think now is a good time to talk about potential changes then for Gastown? I think it's a great time. I mean, uh, we've been talking as a community for many years now about uh, kind of different visions, different uh, ideas of how we can take those uh, beautiful historic streets, honor the history and uh, revitalize it to get more people down there. Yeah. Tell me about some of the things that the BIA is talking about then. So we're talking about uh, expanding the sidewalks, um, creating more community space for events, um, redirecting some of the traffic flow, 
uh, making some changes, improvements to the streets, to the sidewalks, really welcome uh, everybody down, make it a make it a beautiful uh, historic area that it once was. Uh, to make it more kind of pedestrian oriented, I guess, too, right? Because I mean, that is, I would say, probably, you know, if not the most, one of the most pedestrian oriented, like it's pretty pedestrian heavy already. It is, yeah. We see over 15,000 uh, people walking down in front of the restaurant, at least at the Water Street Cafe on a regular day. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that that's, that's kind of the vision is that uh, make it so that it's easily so that we can shut it down and do a community events, have a lot of outdoor space, um, welcome people uh, from all over, have vendors in the streets, uh, slow the traffic down. Um, and I think it's uh, they've come up with some really great plans and really great ideas. Now, one of their ideas is moving the steam clock. How do you feel about that? You're right there. Um, that one, you know, is definitely hard for me to kind of visualize how, to, how that'll help the area. Um, the idea is to kind of have it at the, at the front of Gastown, um, you know, so that everybody can kind of see that as they come in. Um, I, I'm more on the opinion that we want to get people onto our streets, have them come through all the streets of Gastown, not just kind of be on the outside of it. Um, so I personally think that the Gastown steam clock needs to be more in the center and the hub of the area of Gastown. Um, but that will definitely bring a big change wherever that lands. Yeah. So they're talking about moving it to the intersection of Water Street and West Cordova there, as you say, just at the beginning. But, you know, Eli, this is funny because I have a connection to that area too. My first real summer job was summers at a souvenir shop down in Gastown. Mm-hmm. literally right in front of the steam clock. So I heard that thing going off every 15 minutes. It's like burned in my brain. I heard it so much for so long. I just can't really envision moving it somewhere, you know? Like, it just seems kind of artificial to do that. I think that, yeah, I, I personally agree. I mean, I hear it every 15 minutes. I also live in Gaston. I can hear it from my apartment. So oh, wow. I can't, I can't escape it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, there's a comfort to the sound of that. And I, you know, um, I just really believe that uh, changing it, you know, for there has to be a valid reason if we do that big change. Um, and right now, I know that my my business associates and everybody on that corner, that would really affect us. We took those locations. Part of it was because the steam clock was there. Uh, so I do hope the city um, and, uh, you know, the community does take that into consideration and consults everybody in that area. I know that in the summertime, especially with the cruise ships, I mean, that was a, that's a real gathering place, isn't it, right? Because all the tourists stop in front of there because they want to get the picture as the clock goes off. It is a lot of energy and a lot of fun in that area when, when we see the cruise ships in full swing and all the locals coming down to catch those uh, shots of themselves. I mean, the, the selfies that get taken there every day, I don't know. I can't even imagine how many it is. That's a lot. All right. So you, I mean, this is a critical time, obviously, for Gastown. Have businesses closed down there? Like, are things, have things changed in that way? Definitely. There's been some closures. Um, You know, it's been really, really painful and hard to watch colleagues and peers have to uh, close down their dreams, their visions, uh, something that they put their whole life and work into. Um, It's a Definitely. I mean, but that has happened all across BC. Um, and, you know, this is not exclusive to us. So I just ask that, you know, if you're able, if you're, if you have the ability and the means, go out and support a local business, go out and support a restaurant, uh, buy that gift card, um, you know, order that meal. Um, if you're comfortable, go and dine on a patio, um, because that is what's making the difference to help us survive. All right. Well, listen, Eli, best of luck. And hopefully we'll talk to you when things really start to get better. 
Well, call anytime. I look forward to it. Okay, thanks. It's Eli Brennan, owner of the Water Street Cafe. It's been there for a long time down in Gastown. Uh, talking about the plan that the Gastown Business Improvement Association has put forward to, to, according to them, improve things in Gastown. And you know what? Some of the stuff sounds really nice. Like they're talking about really encouraging more pedestrian spaces. I mean, there's, it's so busy in Gastown. Like you, cr- if you drive through there, you're pretty much crawling through there already because you know people are just crossing the street and there's so many people walking around. So they're talking about plans to improve the pedestrian spaces. But the one that's really generating a lot of buzz is their suggestion to relocate the steam clock from where it is right now up to the entrance there at Water Street and West Cordova so that it's kind of like the at the beginning, at the entrance to uh, Gastown as opposed to where it is now, which is just kind of one block into it. I, I'm personally attached to it the way it is and where it is, as Eli makes a great point too. A lot of businesses that are around the steam clock, they want that their location because the steam clock is there. 